Let's begin uh, the uh, discussion, which has many topics we can get into, but I'm going to try and link uh, the idol, which is a relatively new uh, Max thing that it was directed by Sam Levinson, the son of Barry Levinson, and created by him pretty much, and stars Lily Rose Depp and um, uh, a, a guy named Abel Tesfaye. Tesfaye? I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but that, his his full name is Abel, quote unquote, the weekend Tesfaye, T-E-S-F-A-Y-E. Um, anyway, it's 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 basically kind of a soft porn thing, basically. Yeah. It's, it pushes it pushes the you know the envelope of what you might be accustomed to or used to in terms of you know the. There are people that feel, well, listen, we can't just do, you know, typical sort of soft, soft porn. We've got to somehow uh, make people, you know, raise their eyebrows and get them a little excited and say, hey, have you seen this? Because it's, it's, um, it's quite focused on, on, on sex. Um, you know, not, not uninterestingly. Sorry. Uh, but uh, it it's also it feels a little bit sleazy. A little bit, you know, it's not terribly involving from a um, narrative standpoint. It's interesting to see um, uh, Divine Joy Randolph, who I liked before she was in uh, the Eddie Murphy thing. And of course, there's Eli Roth, who I kind of like as an actor, the director, but um, and uh, who else is in it? Uh, Hank, uh, Hank Azaria is in it mm. and some others. But basically, uh, Lily Rose Depp is. Um, it's basically sexual exploitation. It's just basically uh, her and this guy Abel, Abel the weekend test fay are, are there's like you know a lot of kinky stuff going on, including blowjobs. I mean, it's right it's right there. So it's um, that's the that's the idea. I mean, basically either you get off on it or you don't, and that's what seems to be the narrative. Uh, Jeff Snyder was saying either it gets you wet or it gets you hard or it doesn't. Yikes. Um, you know, but that's what the idea is. It's not about, you know, oh, this is an interesting story. It's not, it's not like succession or something. It's not, you know, it's basically uh, the camera is a fly on the wall and it's very alluringly shot. It's, it's, it's very mm-hmm. inviting from a sensual cinematic uh, standpoint. It's not, it's nicely done. Sam Levinson is a good filmmaker, but it's not, uh, it didn't strike me as very substantial. It, it struck me as well. Uh, um, so here's the. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. How graphic are we talking about with sex? Well, you don't see her take him into her mouth, but you basically almost see it. It's there's a there's a lot of you know strong suggestion of of sex of sex in a in a way that's it's not pornographic. It's not X-rated, but it's pretty pretty strong, pretty pretty provocative. That um, seems to be the basic idea is what I'm trying to say. All right. Well, I'm I'm just trying to get to where, you know, when you and I often talk about how eroticism is basically taken mm-hmm. um, out of film these days, mm-hmm. but it, mm-hmm. it didn't look to me like it was actually erotic. I hate to say that word. It sounds so it's like moist, but um, it seemed to me like it wasn't that it was artificial looking eroticism. Um, but I here's the, the most erotic thing. Forget the simulated blowjob. The most erotic thing. It's kind of interesting. He puts, he takes a red, uh, red, red material like a, a dress or a veil, and he puts it over her head and then ties a sash around her neck. 
and you're thinking, well, is she going to be able to breathe properly? And he, she's kind of breathing heavily. You can see the breath going into her mouth. He's saying, open your mouth. And then he takes, it's either, I think it's a knife, actually. And he slices open just enough of the material that is over her head so you can see her mouth in, you know, through the slit in the material. And that is kind of interesting. It's, it's almost something that I uh, would have imagined from... Salvador Dali or Bunuel, you know, if they were doing something erotic in today's world. It's, it's a pretty interesting thing. Not bad. But it is fundamentally about titillation and, and arouse, trying to arouse the viewer. That's really what's going on. There's not much going on besides that. So that's one instance of, of very, uh, you know, <clears throat> of kind of pushing the sexual envelope and, and getting to people and making them pay attention. Here's a second instance. There's a new documentary that is going to be on uh, Max, uh, I don't know, two, three weeks from now, about Rock Hudson. It's called Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allowed. And it's basically by a, a gay director who's basically trying to be a little more um, explicit and, and, and telling tales out of school and talking to ex-lovers, guys, of course, uh, about his um, activities. Uh, you know, obviously away from the spotlight when he was co completely closeted all in his entire life, even when he uh, was dying of, of AIDS and clearly was coping with something pretty horrible around 85. Uh, even then, he was he stayed in the closet his entire life. And uh, he had pretty much no choice. Or didn't, that's the way he felt. And even his friends, the Reagans, as you know, didn't really get uh, behind him and do much to say, uh, do much for the cause of, 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 you know, some sort of cure for AIDS. Anyway, there's a uh, De Variety review uh, that came out yesterday by Peter de Bruges. And basically it says this. Built around interviews with a handful of former lovers and friends, the director, his name is uh, Kai, Kaijack, uh, now I'm trying to remember his name, um, Stephen Kaijack, K-I-J-A-K, spills private details from Hudson's personal life, ranging from whom he shagged to how he arranged such trysts in the first place in the heavily closeted 50s. A uh, secretly re recorded phone call reveals Hudson to be, quote-unquote, a size queen. Audibly excited by the prospect of meeting a tall, well-endowed stranger. Wow. The, whop the Whopper, which underscores the kind of salacious gossip Kajic gravitates towards in the film, comes from a former lover, Joe Carberry, who recalls, quote, Rock had a sizable dick, but he tried to put that thing up my ass, and I couldn't do it, close quote. That's not the sort of um, anecdote that one has ever heard, in, in my recollection, about a major movie star. Uh, that's really like putting it out there in a, in a way that I think is, it goes hat, you know, part of the new explicitness, because they feel that all the streaming and all the options, you've got to get people's attention. You've got to really put it out there. Mm. But I've never heard about uh, any actor, um, you know, had size of organs, uh, anal sex, any of that. I've never heard that before. Huh. So that struck me as like a standout. You've never heard that, that gay men like uh, a big dicks? Not specifically about a big name actor uh, and not a, an anecdote like that. 
Huh. Yes, I've I've heard about or in the course of my life, I've heard about guys. Remember um, um the uh living color thing back in the early nineties? Men on books. Uh-uh. Remember that bit that we used to do about, about Moby Dick? Uh, anyway, that was funny. So that's a that's a, a cliche that we all we're all familiar with. Mm. But this was a, a very explicit uh odd thing. And it just struck me that there's a, a, a kind of a candor element that's um or a specific you know detailed thing that's happening now because they the producers know they have to do something other than just do the same thing they have to stand out they have to break through so well the the two different things because the the um the lily the lily rose depp is unusual for today other than the fact that it's an interracial romance that's pretty standard um mm-hmm. But What's unusual about Lily Rose Depp? Simulating that that oral sex or what? That it's, heter- that it's heterosexual sex. It's sort of... Ah! <laughs> that's the standoff. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's old school uh-huh. objectivity. Right. Of the kind that we don't generally... That's funny. Um, hmm. that, we don't, that we don't generally um, associate with Hollywood mm-hmm. anymore. Like, we just don't see that because of the whole Me Too thing. You know, right. this is, this is right. the kind of thing we used to see a lot of. Showgirls, you know. What they love to do in Hollywood, which is understandable, is to take a really beautiful girl like that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of like her coming out party. You know, like a debutante would be introduced, you know, by coming down the stairs as a woman. Right. This is the coming out party. Hollywood style would always be a woman who's kind of seen as a young girl or a kid or something suddenly mm-hmm. becoming overtly sexual in a movie to sort of, you know, like when Miley Cyrus did it, you know, it was like a way to transition out of a, a more childlike image to being right. a more grown woman by being very sexual. That, that mm-hmm. is something you see a lot with younger actresses, not in the fifties or whatever, but mm-hmm. you know, in the eighties and nineties, certainly. Um, you know, we never really saw Julia Roberts do that, but she didn't really have to because she was never really seen as like a Disney star, you know. Julia Roberts never even came close to that realm of, of sexually explicit performing in no, any way, no. shape, or form. She never did that. The closest she ever got was Erin Brockovich uh, when she had the sexy outfit. So that was pretty much it. But, um, but no. Was she... just, that was a symbolism, just an outfit. She, there was never any sexuality. Of any pronounced manner, you know, that that she ever indulged in. No, she was very, but she was still really sexy and really beautiful. Like she, she didn't have to make that transition out of being a kid type right. to being, you know, overtly sexual. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, in this mm-hmm. case, I don't know. Like to me, it just looked really artificial from the trailer that I saw. On the other hand, I understand the value of mm-hmm. us of us being primates and needing to have that privacy to just stare and gawk at somebody so beautiful as her. I can really see mm-hmm. that that the, the essential value of that. And if she doesn't mind it, where's the problem? Where's the harm? You know, if she doesn't feel like she's being exploited, I don't think it's anybody's anybody's place to tell her that she is being exploited. I think it's not our place or it's not Jeff Snyder's place to say that Lily Rose Depp is being is, you know, participating in a sexual exploitation. I don't think so. Personally. Okay. I think it's her choice. 
uh, to do it. No, of course, it's her choice. But I'm just saying you're saying that we shouldn't say that. We shouldn't observe that. We shouldn't take note of that. But why? why? Why would you? For what reason? Because it's there. Because I was looking at the two episodes last night and going, oh, that's something. That certainly stands out. And in the, in the same sense that way back when in what, Elevator to the Gallows, uh, Jean Moreau was involved in sexually explicit, fairly explicit, certainly suggestive stuff in a Louis Mal film called Elevator to the Gallows. And the lovers that he also made. That was quite the, the envelope pusher. So this is the same sort of thing. You know? I, I'm of the mind that it's a it's a woman's choice to to explore. Of course it is. And that it's not really for us to decide. That's just how I feel. If she wants to show off her body like that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, this is we're living through a very extremely narcissistic age. Like right. Weimar Germany. You know, like this is Berlin in the 1930s, you know, mm. the, so the kind of level of indulgence of self that we're seeing uh, in social media and everywhere else is is common, and and everybody wants it. Mm. And any woman who looks like that, that's you know, that's a million dollar check. You know what I mean? Like that's 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 all you got, right? I I don't think she's looking for respectability as an actress. I think she was discovered because she's beautiful, because she's Johnny Depp's daughter. And that's it. So if people want to look, she's not trying to be a serious actress. Maybe that'll come later. But what she's going for now is stardom, superstardom. And the fastest. And that's what I'm saying. You're, there's no indication that there's anything serious about this. It is mostly sexual titillation. That's what it feels like. Yeah, I know. But, like. but what's wrong with that? Nothing. I, 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 I kind of enjoy the, the erotic element. It was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, it, but I'm just saying that's what it is. That's what I'm saying. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I prefer that if it's just overt and direct rather than when we all sat through mm -hmm. blue, blue is the warmest color in Cannes and pretend all these guys <laughs> pretending that it was mm -hmm. something other than that. That's what I mm -hmm. thought was funny. Like, let's sit here and pretend like we're watching two <clears throat> really top level, like super hot, couldn't possibly be any hotter teenage french mm -hmm. girls getting it on and that <laughs> this is some sort of deep and you know meaningful romance like no that was never what it mm. was and they knew it so it's just it's a much more it's a cleaner transaction if you're just saying mm. i'm i'm not i'm not trying to make this anything other than what it is right and so i appreciate now, her for just in my opinion just going for something like that no apologies okay yeah. Now, by the way, I have another linkage to offer to you. Um, one is about how if a, an actor or a filmmaker has gotten into trouble as far as the, the wokarati is concerned, uh, the normal thing is you run away from them and say, I, I, you know, I shouldn't have worked with them. You know, that, that's what happened with Woody Allen. And, and, uh, and I'm just thinking about two things. One is the <clears throat> likelihood of Woody Allen's latest and possibly his last film. It's um, it's called Coup de Chance. Coup de Chance. Uh, uh, you know, luck. Uh, random luck is what it means. <clears throat> and it's probably, according to what Jordan Rumi uh, reported, and it seems like it it's going in the direction of being a, a big debut at Venice, the Venice Film Festival. The, <laughs> yeah, uh, sure Venice. it will. Huh? <laughs> sure it will. Sure, it will. You're laughing. I, I don't think, think that bullshit? they will. Yeah, of course not. They're gonna pull that movie. Are you kidding? 
Anyway, go ahead. Well, I, I, I maybe you're right. I'm, I'm just saying that, in other words, the people who are speculating that it looks like that Barbera is going to bring it into Venice, you think that's just silly speculation that has no, you know, basis in reality? He wouldn't well, dare uh, do that. Well, put it this way: if they had the nerve to do it and they actually did it, I would never stop laughing. It would be the funniest. You know that he brought in Polanski's film. You you recall that, right? That wasn't too long ago. That was what two years ago. Yeah, I know. But Officer... two years ago, look, don't you know? I mean, after twenty twenty, like that. That's it. Like that was the social justice revolution, and we're seeing some backlash. Actually, no, no. Wait a minute. That you're talking about people of color and and no, whole, it's all um, of it, bro. It's all of it. That's talking about me too. It's 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 the com- what... the complete takeover of by the fanatics. Uh, all the way up to the people just became traumatized, I think, after 2020 for so many reasons and that they just mm-hmm. submitted. They went into this kind of mass formation fugue state and they just obey. It's this beautiful book that takes place in Russia at some point. And because all mm-hmm. these Ukrainians complain that she's daring to write a book that takes place in Russia, she's going to stop the publication of it. And it's just like, it's so strange to me. Like, I, I follow this Russian ASM artist um, on YouTube who I love. And I've been watching her for years, and her family lives in Russia. She's not part of the Putin thing. She's just a, you know, a woman who happens to live there. So what? So I'm going to censor right. her work. I'm going to kick her off of YouTube. I'm going to demonize her. Barack Obama's her favorite president. Oh, you're saying that Alberto Barbera, who in 2019... Two years after the explosion of Me Too in 17, it was the Harvey Weinstein uh-huh. thing, brought in um, Roman Polanski, whose notoriety is you know, Im- embedded in the culture for, for decades, since the late 70s, when his whole uh, you know, uh, problems began. Yeah. Uh, he, that, that was a very nervy and daring thing. And you're thinking that- I, he, I agree, but I, I think that after 2020, 2020 marked total capitulation by the ruling. You think it intensified on the Me Too front? On well? every, not just, no, this is not about just Me Too. This is active. That's what that's what the Woody and the Roman thing. It's about no, women that isn't. Being that, angry. that is not. It is about the Me Too movement, like the Black Lives Matter movement, all had some sort of basis in reality and truth that was authentic in the beginning, and then it morphed into mass hysteria. And the thing is, is that these people that have overtaken the Joe Biden administration and our country culturally, right. politically, and in every other way. Mm-hmm. They're not specifically target. They're not specifically about Black Lives Matter. They're not specifically about trans rights. They're not specifically about Me Too. They're they're all. It's all the same thing. It's all social justice mm-hmm. version of their America, right? Okay. So yep. it doesn't. What they're not looking for specifically in Me Too, they're looking for justice against Woody Allen, right. and it doesn't matter who it is. It could be a trans activist on Twitter saying it, a Black Rights activist on twitter saying it a mm-hmm. me too activist on twitter saying it doesn't matter it's all the same they're they're an activist revolution that is sort of overtaken and that the industries respond to and obey so woody allen has become like army hammer is persona non grata right so the the amount of i'm not saying that venice will absolutely bow to that what I'm saying is if they don't and, and Woody Allen drives up on the Lido in a boat with Soon Yi, 
and they walk the red carpet and people take pictures mm-hmm. what i'm telling you is i will never stop laughing about that because it will be there, there will be so much pleasure in watching people flip out and it'll I be fun to, it'll be fun i hate to have schadenfreude like that i know it's cruel but i've just I've, i mean i've just seen so much at the hands of these fanatics that it's just brought me to this point where i just i i you know i really want to see them go down if you know anything about Terry Fromo, the uh, head of the Cannes Film Festival, who makes all the calls about what films to bring in, he's not the sort of person who uh, would, would would not want to bring in Woody Allen's latest film, particularly a, a film that was, that's shot in the French language and set in Paris. An ideal thing, what I understood, is that he wanted to do it. Is it was his natural instinct to invite strong, controversial, uh, you know, well well-traveled and, 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 and decades-honored filmmakers like Woody, but he was told by the board, yeah, you know, the people that exactly. he reports to, no way are you bringing him in. Uh-huh. And he basically had to capitulate to them. Of course. Yeah. Yes. We are lacking spine in this country, especially on the left, or the people that I always grew up believing were the heroes of this kind of thing. You know, not, not... And it's so weird to see, because I'm just reading this, finishing up in the last hours of the really sad, really sad Robert Oppenheimer story. The, um, all right, let's not get into that. All right. We're all right. I'm just saying that, that, yeah. that is the same thing because it takes place during the Red Scare. But yeah. um, anyway, so the only so if let's say if, if it does go to Bennett, let's just say that. All right. All right. We, then... all know, we all know it's a very common routine, par for the course thing that if it plays in Venice, we naturally assume it's going to the same film will show in Telluride. That's a very common thing. Mm. Uh, not necessarily Toronto, because they're much more populous and much more, you know. But you would think that if it's... Now, it's supposed to be a good film, remember. It's, it's supposed to be a kind of a resurgence. It's supposed to be maybe his best film since Matchpoint. And, uh, and, and yet you and I know that, uh, that Julie, who runs the Telluride Film Festival, would be very, very surprising if she... Very. It would be, but it would, again, be the funniest thing that ever happened. Like, I would, I would just, it would be a gift to me in my late age that I could watch this. I would love it. I would love it. I would love to see the Eric Cones and all the crazies in Telluride. It would be wonderful. I, I would know. love it. I would love to see all of them. You know, boycott the festival, give up their tickets, you know, not you think take they would the... go that far? Oh, are you kidding? I won't name names, but 100%, mm-hmm. yes. Okay. They would. It would be... But I would just love it if that happened. Same... No, I, I don't expect Julie to, to invite him because it's just, she's asking oh, no. for too much trouble she... and she doesn't want to... I don't blame her, you know, politically. But it would be amazing if she if she decided to stand up and do this. All the patrons that spend all those thousands of dollars, you know, mm-hmm. mushy, morally mushy Puritans, they would never accept that. Money, bro. Money talks. And it's all yeah. about that. And if you've got money at the top, just like the board, it can. Right. Every single one of those people, their reputation is on the line because the eager beavers, the insane zealots, Mm-hmm. We'll, fo- we'll make phone calls to ruin people's lives, just like they do with us, right? Right, right. Just like they do with your, you know, when they threaten you to call your advertisers or yep. film yep. festivals to get you kicked out, those, those hideous little monsters yep. calling to get you thrown out of the Toronto Film Festival because they're so afraid of any sort of dissent. Right. Um, they're cowards. And mm. 
it's so sad to see that because what they've done is created this sanitized bubble yep. where no one can tell the truth and nothing right. is interesting. So mm. no, it won't happen at Telluride. I seriously doubt it's going to happen in Venice. Um, Woody Allen will die before he is ever vindicated if he ever is, which is a shame because I love his movies and they've shaped so much of my life. Um, yeah. I was I have sleeper. Sleeper is really hard to find. I had to get it in um ways that mm -hmm. I won't admit on on a podcast, but mm -hmm. um I was watching it and it reminds me so much of of what has become of the left and 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 mm -hmm. sort of culture in general, not Diane Keaton's life, you know, and she's she's this this crazy woman living in this, you know, this happy world where they're all having parties and going in their orgasmatrons and and yet she she asks to recite her poem. Oh yeah. <laughs> and somebody says, "Oh, that's so no. McEwen." <laughs> it's so much great. like yeah. McEwen, but mm -hmm. he also says, "It's a great poem, but the butterfly doesn't the the, the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. <laughs> the butterfly doesn't and then she just loses it. She's like, "Damn yeah. it. Damn it. Now everything like and so, you know, they have everything. Hap absolute happiness, mm -hmm. absolute serenity, told what to think, never have to fear for their lives. But they've lost something essential, and that was the point he was making. She can't write poetry. Yeah. Because she can't face the truth. She can't confront any sort of reality. Right. So, and he he makes that point beautifully in Sleeper, even though most of that movie is just slapstick comedy all the way through. Those those scenes mm -hmm. Where he really gets down to it, and he, you know, he talks about stuff that that's deep and that matters. I think just makes that one of the best movies he ever made. Anyway, having mentioned the Woody thing and the likelihood of Venice or Telluride, there is another person who has had difficulties recently, and is uh, I don't know if he is in fact persona non grata, but people have uh, red flagged him, and that's Bill Murray for his. Uh, sexual misconduct on that um, that film that never actually was made, and uh, you know everybody thought it was uh, you know something a little um, bizarre or or dark with regarding the um, the actress of color whose name just flew out of my head when I'm talking. But let's <laughs> I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. Anyway, so anyway, there's a Bill Murray is is a bad person. You know you don't want to work with him. People are running away. Wes Anderson had has just uh, been uh, quoted in an interview with Eric Cohn uh, of IndieWire, and he has said that he is not running away from Bill Murray, and that he uh, absolutely is going to uh, continue. My my experience with Bill is so extensive. Bill was such a great supporter of me from the very beginning. I don't want to speak about somebody else's experience, but he's really part of my family. You know, he's my daughter's godfather. In fact, he actually baptized her. He's the one who splashed the water. So he is not going to run away, as many filmmakers have done. You know, he's not going to run away from Bill Murray, which is, I think, this is Wes extremely Anderson? admirable. Wes Anderson? Huh? This is Wes Anderson? Yes. yes. Wow. Well, I have newfound respect for him. Yeah, me too. Good for him. He didn't throw him under the bus. That's fantastic. Because the normal thing is to throw him under the bus, like Timothy Chalamet threw Woody Allen under the bus when, you know, just to play it safe. Because they're told um, they have to. Do. That's the modern day equivalent of naming names. Um, so yep. Exactly. Bill Murray, what did Bill Murray do again, supposedly? Did we ever find out? 
was called Being Mortal and what he was accused of doing, allegedly, although it all resulted in a cash settlement mm. of, of basically, um, I guess he thought he, he had explained to an, an interviewer that he thought it was funny. So I guess he thought he was doing some sort of pantomime, pantomime or something that was supposed to be kind of like fooling around. But he sexually straddled her or pretended <laughs> to be, a, uh, you know, sexually aggressive with this young woman. Not a, not a producer, by the way, a relatively uh, uh, small, you know, lower on the totem pole person who worked on the film. I think she was, I forget, was it uh, costumes or makeup or something? But she was not like a producer. She was like, a, you know, just a woman who was working on the film. And when that happened, the producers went totally, you know, they, they, they freaked out and the whole thing was shut down for something that really could have been addressed uh, while they were shooting. I never understood why they that stopped the whole film. That wasn't the thing where he got warned and then he went and did it again. Wasn't that? Yeah, well, he's been warned, as you know, all his career. He's not exactly a day at the beach. He's got a prickly personality. He has, a, you know, kind of a hair trigger temper. Uh, he's not known for being a guy that is, is easy to get along with and be careful with Bill Murray and so on. So I don't think he was warned about this young woman on the on the on the Aziz Azari film called Being Mortal. I think it just happened this one time. What what I understand. Mm. Anyway. Well, I mean, see, the thing is, is that when you are a society based on goodness, as, as we have become over the past, uh, let's say, 20 years, we've, we've been, I, I sort mm -hmm. of tra trace it back to Obama's rise when he was a, mm -hmm. good, a good person. That's when the left became the side that were the good people, the good, the Aaron Sorkins, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the sort of smart intellectual, but also good, morally good. When you get yourself in a position of having to judge whether people are good or bad, mm -hmm. and you, you get into that binary, it's really difficult to get out of it because you know if it, you know because it requires that you loosen up and say what's the big deal, you know what he did, but then you're taking away the the way the woman felt on the set, which you don't know. You put a picture in your head of how it might have gone down, and you have no idea because no one's told you. Mm -hmm. Um, just like that whole Jordan uh, Neely story. Jordan Neely, it's it's yeah. that kind of thing. Like we immediately put a picture in our head of how it went. And mm -hmm. we don't have a video like, I mean, all we had was the, the last part of it. We didn't see. Well, no, we, there's three minutes, three minutes of video. Uh, apparently the whole episode on the floor of the F train did take place roughly over a period of five minutes. Yeah, but they don't show all the stuff that happened before. Like the, he points out. People were too afraid to lift up their phones and film. That's him. right. It's so, natural human nature when someone's acting crazy and aggressive is that, you know, you, you don't look. You just keep your head down and hope it'll, it'll if stop. I, if I saw someone yelling into a child's face, I would want to do something about it personally. Now, I, I would do it, too, if it was a child. I don't know what I would have done in that particular situation. But if there are kids involved, mm -hmm. I, you know, I do have a mama bear instinct where I will I will interject myself into a situation to protect you're absolutely correct in feeling that, and that instinct is a, is is a beautiful thing on the part of any person with any cojones or any backbone. Yeah. If a child is threatening, you always stand up for the child. Absolutely. I would put myself in front of the person and the kid, just me personally. That's what I would do. I don't know that I would. I mean, I certainly couldn't have restrained him. I don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. Um. Either way, we don't want to get into a long thing about that. I was just saying, like, mm -hmm. you know, we we live in this age where you're asked a binary: good, bad. You know, white supremacist, 
not white supremacist, you know? Right, right. And, we, you know, we don't always err on the side of benefit of the doubt, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and in Bill Murray's case, you know, we don't take factor in all the years we've seen him, his work and know him. We just take this one story and we apply it and we decide, oh, bad, bad guy, bad yep. thing he did. That's right. Um, and I don't really personally think that's fair. I don't think that's a good way to, to, to decide who gets to have a career and who doesn't, you know? Well, that's what the woke community is doing, though. They, they, once they decide that someone has been nailed and they are questionable, if not bad, uh, that's the impetus is to uh, that that person is, is out. You know, we're going to like uh, blackball them. And that's what happened with him, at least to some extent. I don't know if it's absolute because he really didn't do anything that bad. I mean, it was gro- gauche and, 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 and bad behavior and, you know, obviously not something you want to. Uh, give a pass to but um you know he was he was pretty much you know blackballed as far as i felt you know he's he's like a you know he we we've he's been a problem for guy for years and people know he's prickly and he's got behavior issues and just you know part of his uh personality um, what happened from deadline yes Golden Globes acquired by Dick Clark Productions and Eldridge, HFPA, to wind it down. And it says, Dick Clark Productions and Eldridge, I don't know what and Eldridge means, said Monday morning that they have acquired all the Golden Globes assets, rights, and properties from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. As a result, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and its membership will have handed out the award, which have handed out the awards, will be winding down. With proceeds well, from... Well, in so many words, you're saying that they're canceling the Golden Globes or what? Uh, what are you saying? I'm trying to... As part of the deal, Dick Clark Productions and its partners will plan, host, and produce the annual Golden Globes Awards show and will pursue commercial opportunities for Golden Globes globally. Um, mm-hmm. Today's transaction completes a process that was kicked off last July when HFPA approved Eldridge Industries' proposal to create a private entity to manage its Golden Globe assets. I have no idea what this means. Like I don't know what it means either. They've just completely buried the lead. Like I don't know what they're talking about here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. are they saying that you know that the that the Golden Globes, the Hollywood Foreign Press, will cease to exist and they won't be voting on the awards anymore? Um, well, it sounds like we have to process it and read it through because it doesn't sound very clear cut. I always thought that Dick Clark Productions had something to do with the Golden Globes for years and years, didn't it? Oh, here's the weird part, though. Okay. They did bury the lead. So guess who Eldridge is? Yes, who Pen- is he? Penske Media. Oh, okay. Penske Media <laughs> Eldridge acquired... Uh, DCP, Dick Clark Productions, in January as part of a larger strategic alliance with Eldridge augmenting its existing partnership with Penske Media's entertainment media brands Mm -hmm. and South by Southwest. So that means they they now own Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Deadline, Mm -hmm. Gold Derby, um, and the Golden Globes. Okay. So, so are they going to continue making the Golden Globes an annual thing or, or what? What's, what's being said here? Um, it says, yes, they are. But, but what okay. I don't know is 
who's going to be voting on the war awards. I, I feel like Jeff, honestly, like, I mean, I can, I can keep this going for a while longer, but I, as somebody who's been, been doing this 20 years, I feel like this is game over pretty much for the, for the awards race in general, because everything is, is pretty much destroyed. <laughs> I mean, it's just yeah. what's left. Like if Penske media that's bought every trade has now going to own the golden globes, if the Academy has basically said, let them eat cake to the general public and has walled themselves mm -hmm. off into a little tiny utopia and, yep. and Hollywood has done the same and it's all going to be about streaming and these insular little companies. Right. What's the mm -hmm. point of any of it? Like it's, it's almost as though it's, it's, it only exists to validate the egos of the people who who uh, who fund all this stuff and the Tom Rislaffy uh, uh, yeah but here you have to I think no we not have not to, the oh. Tom Riss, the people at the top I'm talking about the people okay. who make the money well that's that is a, a motivating factor a, a principal motivating factor as far as uh, Penske is concerned they want to make money with the Golden Globes so it doesn't seem like there anything has really fundamentally changed here right they kind of continue to well, yep. it does change because Penske Media takes money from the studios. Yes. So basically, this is a money laundering operation. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Gold Derby predicts the awards. Variety writes about the films. Mm -hmm. The people predict the awards on Gold Derby, which is owned by Penske. All the studios mm -hmm. flood these sites with ads. Mm -hmm. So Penske Media almost has a monopoly on ads anyway, almost, right. not quite. There's a few holdouts, <laughs> but they almost have a monopoly, mm -hmm. which if they have the Golden Globes, the Golden Globes are now basically just going to be pure public relations. Right. And, you know, and, and, and people will argue and say, well, they were always that, maybe. But they had the appearance of being a separate, independent group that thought, independently and, and, and funded themselves. They weren't funding mm -hmm. a company that has now bought up all of the right. outlets that cover the awards and then take money from the studio. So the <clears throat> studios are going to be, it's going to be the same game as the Golden Globes had. The yeah. studios are still going to be paying the people who own the Golden Globes and it's still going to be pay to play. It's just mm -hmm. that they're going to have extra layers of protection. Well, it's too complex to um, to get All into right, any fine. further. But um, let's let's move on to some other topics that we've already scoped out that we're going to talk about. One being that Sasha Stone has finally seen air and her <laughs> reaction. Uh, this is like a few few weeks, several weeks after it opened, and your reaction was initially, "This isn't very compelling. Or this isn't mm. very absorbing." But then. The final act when Matt Matt Damon uh, makes the big pitch and it, yeah. and it works and 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 uh, and they, you know they they wind up winning and you liked it at that point. Can you kind of run down your basic uh, reactions to the film? Well, I'll say this: I like both Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. I think they're 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 definitely, I think you know, decent people who who really are trying to do things something good in the world. I don't think that this is ego driven or. Um, yeah. profit driven. It's definitely, they want to make a new business model for actors and they mm -hmm. want to tell a story that they think is important. And it is an important story to tell. And it's told in an exciting way. Once you get past the first very talky, very boring first, if, if anything, they're guilty of being t a little too into the subject. <laughs> you know? 
it's a well, little too inside baseball, but that's the idea. It's, it's very it inside, inside baseball, baseball, basketball, but it's, it's so it, they do, they do drop a bunch of stuff that, that they're interested in that I don't think that the audience is particularly interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it gets to the part where Michael Jordan's family is making the deal and it gets mm-hmm. to the part where he's about to change history, I and mean, we already know how it's going to end, but it doesn't matter because it's still fun to watch. But, mm-hmm. you know, when he first says no, and then Viola Davis says, you know, if his name is going to be on it, he's going to profit from it. And everything that happens after that point, I think is, mm-hmm. is exciting and interesting. But that's only because it involves actually Michael Jordan. Yeah. And he he's really the whole thing. Like just him alone, the fact that he is as successful as he is, that he's endured as much tragedy as he has and as much mm-hmm. success as he has and 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 what a what a what an amazing right. athlete he is to watch. All of that mm-hmm. makes air cuz nobody I don't care about a Nike shoe, you know? And and I certainly don't care about these characters at all. But I like the part about I like the how they ended it. I like that they went through mm-hmm. and they said where everybody ended up. And I think that the core problem that I told you about still exists, though, in Hollywood. And it's it's a um, it's it's a it's a, uh, a endemic. Like I think that it's not going away anytime soon. And that is this need to position yourself as a you know an Aaron Sorkin type, a good person. And I, I do think that that's going to continue to plague Hollywood. And one of the reasons why, like, I think Air is a good movie. I'm not dissing it at all. I think it's good. I'm not mm-hmm. complaining about it. I'm just talking about an over, sort of an overview of what's going on right now, which is that if you have a movie with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and uh, Matt um, Bateman, whatever his first name is. Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman. And they're all three good guys, and they're basically the same type of good guy, the same type of character. I know they're being specific to the history, but do we really need three of them? Um, and, and, and furthermore, if we're talking about living through the 80s, right? In the 80s, we weren't politically correct, right? We wouldn't have said things like, a white guy does this. Mm. You know, we didn't think that way back then. Mm. We didn't specify that people were white. You know, like, yeah. And, and furthermore, we, we thought about women differently. We talked, we flirted in the office. If I was making a movie about the 80s, I would show that. I would show all the ways that it was different back then. I wouldn't try to mirror today um, to, to, in order to recast them as, as better people than they probably were. I would show them saying things that you just don't say today, you know, mm. and things you don't do just for my own fun to, to, to reflect what the eighties were really like. Cause this could have taken place in any era. Right. So if yeah. you're going to do the eighties, why not show how different it was in the eighties compared to now? It would be funny to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so as opposed to, you know, what, what Hollywood seems to want us to do constantly is pat people on the back. Boy, what a good person you are. You're such a good person. Like, Laura Dern on Instagram talking about her politics or Jennifer mm-hmm. Garner's healthy recipe or I'm just right. saying that that you know it gets exhausting to have to constantly have that smile on your face and and be rewarding people <laughs> like you know you kind of just that's why Succession and White Lotus were so compelling because they didn't do that well I don't think what you're saying is that you feel that on some level air is virtue signaling is that what you're saying not virtue well yeah I mean it is but 
I, I, it's not in a bad way. It's in a good way. They're telling the truth, but it is mm-hmm. about virtue of everybody involved. Mm-hmm. And, and that is kind of boring. You know what I mean? Like, that's a flat line. Yeah, it does not have a great amount of complexity, but it is interesting to see a story of a tenacious guy who decides to to pursue an unlikely uh, goal, which is to sign the great Michael Jordan to a, an exclusive shoe deal. And so it's kind of fun, and you you know you're you're engaged with 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 Matt Damon's character. Yeah, uh, because he does, you know, he sticks with it and he risks uh, obviously big things with his career, especially going around the agent who loses his, loses his temper completely. So it's kind of, you know, it's satisfying. It's nice. It so. doesn't. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. It is a very nice film. You know, if people yeah. want to sit down and feel good about themselves and, and, and then they can watch that and then they will. And, and you mm-hmm. know, nothing wrong with that. Just like yeah. with that Lily Depp movie, there's nothing wrong with giving people what they want, you know. Mm-hmm. And I like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. I think they're very smart, and I think they wrote a good script, and I think yeah. it's a solid film. Mm-hmm. My my lament is just this idea of where you of how you limit yourself when you I- eliminate um, so many complexities that we all have as human beings. I think it's harder to tell a story if you're always worried about that if you're always worried yeah. about your image and you're always worried about being hauled into the public square and being humiliated i think that the climate of fear has had a, a, a disastrous effect on on art i don't think that that's necessarily the problem for air yeah. it's one of those things like it's a kind of a miracle it exists at all you yeah know? Um, you know it's funny though um i i think that this this happens uh, from time to time, when a when a film has been embraced by certain critics early, and the and the and the word uh, the buzz starts to build on something, I think that it was oversold a bit because I uh, I kind of fell for it. I mean, yeah. I felt that it was for what it is. I thought it was very good, given that it's a relatively small story within a narrow field. But uh, I when you get back and you kind of take a, a, a broader view, it doesn't have say the emotional. Or the spiritual current of my all-time favorite inside baseball sort sports story, which is uh, which is Brad Pitt's Moneyball, uh, Bennett Miller's Moneyball. That was a wonderful, beautiful, spiritual thing about doing something different and coming from a different perspective. That was really that that really that I, that's why I watched that film at least once a year, and have maybe seen it ten times. I think it's a really beautiful film, and, and Air does not have that that. That that metaphor, that quality. Well, my favorite is uh, Bull Durham. It'll always be that. Like, I I, I always fundamentally a love story, though, right? Whenever I try to think about, well, yeah, I mean, sort of, yeah. I mean, when I think about movies that I love mm-hmm. that that don't exist anymore, that don't get made, I think about Bull Durham because I think about these three characters in that movie that are totally weird characters, <laughs> and mm. they're they're very complex and they're very contradictory, and they have all sorts of weird stuff going on with them. And yeah. they, they don't need to be good. In fact, that was our, our ethos back then, is that the, we're the opposite. You know, we're the rebels, we're the outsiders, we're the outcasts, we're the anti-establishments. And that made for more interesting writing and more interesting characters, in my opinion. You've had flawed people mm-hmm. instead of people who always have to be good, you know, good people, pat on the back, good, good job, good, good Puritan, right. good, good, you know. 
And that, that I think bothers me a lot. And it's true <clears throat> across the board. The gay characters are always good. The women are always good. The only people who are allowed even a tiny bit of complexity are white men usually, but, mm -hmm. but not in air, right? In air because they're trying to tell an out, you know, an aspirational story. Everybody has to be good. So in its own way, it's become like mm. the family friendly Christian movies that they used to make, you know? <laughs> Let's jump over briefly to um, where things stand with the French connection censorship right. thing. Speaking the most recent of... thing are two uh, disturbing, I might really, there's no other word for it, it's disturbing revelations. Uh, the first one is I have heard from a person who showed me proof of a uh, Disney asset list. The, the assets that the Walt Disney Company are listed very specifically. And um, it's something that people that uh, you know deal on the business side, they have access to this, these charts and these statements. And this person told me that uh, there is a new version of the French Connection, and it's called 2021 William Friedkin V, probably standing for version 2. And it, and it basically uh, says that it's in, in an official Disney uh, uh, jargon, there is this new version that came up. And it's, it's called not the 21 V2 Disney, it's William Friedkin V2. Mm -hmm. that, is, uh, that means or certainly strongly implies that William Friedkin himself approved this censorship of a nine-second uh, brief scene in Act 1 that uses the N-word, which is why the, the censorship happened in the first place. Uh, yeah, this, I, I'm not sure. Is he still alive? He is 87 years old and alive, and not only alive, but apparently working on a new film that may or not, may not happen. It's basically, um, uh, he's doing another version of, see, it's not 12 Very Angry Men, but it's something else. Um, anyway, he's working on something. He's not quitting. Now, uh, maybe his health is not what it, could have been uh, the last time I saw him uh, on a video thing. He didn't look as vibrant, but you know we all get older, so you're naturally that's not a big shock or anything. But there's a second thing that I wanted to mention, along with this version two that was officially uh, acknowledged in, in in Disney data, which is that a statement from the Criterion Collection about this thing. They said in a statement that the um, <clears throat> Uh, the, the deletion of the film was not their idea. This is something that was basically a, a Disney thing. They, they said that, uh, that this is uh, um, something that Friedkin himself uh, had. Uh, it's called a director's edit of the film. So they had nothing to, to do with it. It's just that this is what was provided by the Disney company. And they called it a director's edit. Mm -hmm. So that's two different... Uh, pieces of information that suggest yeah. that Friedkin himself, shockingly, uh, you know, decided to do this to to capitulate to the scolds, to the woke woke scolds. Even uh, though uh, the no, movie I, I I have to correct you. Okay. He's not capitulating to them, Jeff. He is one of them. You understand? This isn't about. Okay, it could be partly about money, like they did with. Raul Dahl and, and, and some other books, Agatha right. Christie and other books that they changed the language. Orwell. Also. Oh, God. Yeah. But, I, but I have to say that in terms of um, this movie, I would guess, knowing what I know about Hollywood and boomers mm -hmm. especially, is, or silent or whatever he is, is mm -hmm. that 
he's a good Puritan and, and he doesn't want to be the person that puts that out there. He's not defending it. He's not some Quentin Tarantino type or Clint Eastwood or, you know, someone who feels like, you know, I, I have to keep this in because it's authentic to the work. Mm-hmm. That's what a film critic would, would care about more. A film right. fan. The director, he doesn't want that to be his legacy. He doesn't want to be putting that word out there in the world. He's ashamed but it's that been he out ever... there for fifty something years, Sasha. And I know, but he's changes. he's he's ashamed of that. I'm not sure how much you get it, Jeff. What's actually going on? We're well, living... I do get it, but listen to what he you know that they, they were celebrating the fiftieth anniversary of the French Connection in late twenty one, and Friedkin did two interviews, at least two, many more, I'm sure. But I found two in which he said basically that. Um, uh, he didn't have any real problem with Eddie Egan's character, basically the the basis, the real life basis of um, of Popeye Doyle, who played by Jane Gene Hackman. And he said that um, I thought it was an act that he was doing to survive in the street. He wasn't really racist. Now Gene Hackman was concerned. He didn't like playing a racist, but basically he went along with it because this was what what the guy was. Uh, he said that if he were to remake The French Connection, if he were. Not much would change. He said his goal was to portray policing as he saw it and leave it to audiences to decide for themselves, which is basically what the film did back in 71. It didn't editorialize or critique him for being this beast who had these ugly feelings. But he, he said he would stick to that. And he also told an entertainmentweekly.com uh, journalist named Maureen Lee Lenker, he said that if I don't think I'd make a cop film today, but if I did, it wouldn't be much different. And I would try to capture the action and the dialogue and so on. But you'd be amazed how close that film is to the way things really were back then. I don't celebrate that behavior, but I'm fascinated by it. In other words, he's not, you know, he doesn't have a problem with showing racist characters and have and their dialogue. So it doesn't square with a guy who approved a deletion, especially when you consider Yeah, it does. Come on. It does? Well, yeah, for a lot of reasons. I mean, you can just talk about money for it. You can talk about an ESG score. You can talk about libraries won't play it or schools, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, they won't show it if it has that word in there, right? Like they wouldn't read To Kill a Mockingbird or Huck Finn. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what the content of the movies are, they're they're considered offensive. Yeah. Um, Dr. Seuss books were considered offensive to do harm. People believe when they watch it and they hear that word that that does harm. A lot of people believe that. On the left, I'd say the majority of people believe that. Mm. That's why they're taking away like the SAT and the LSAT, and they're lowering standards because they want to take and change what our history is in a, in a way that makes them feel better right and and i'm not sure it's a successful way to go but there's no stopping it it is happening so to him it's not that big of a sacrifice to take away a word if he knows that means that a lot of people are going to read or uh, watch it and mm-hmm. the thing is is that what i think is mind-boggling and astonishing mm-hmm. is that there's a reason why there was such a huge explosion of rage all through the 60s and all through the, you know, the era of, of Black Lives Matter and the uprisings and stuff. It doesn't, didn't just come from nowhere. And if you have a movie that shows that history, then it's much easier to make the case of, of justified rage. If you take it out, 
just like that George Clooney movie, if you take out the history, uh, Judith, Judith Baker, uh, you know, is a black female mm. editor of the Wall Street Journal. If you take out right. that history, then how do you explain any of the activism? You can't. Mm-hmm. Because you're saying that it never existed in the first place. It's mm-hmm. it's right out of 1984. Um, so I don't think that Friedkin would want to fight to keep the N word in his movie. Put it that but way. You, you know that William Friedkin is not exactly uh, Arthur Hiller. He's been a very tenacious, tough guy. He's not uh, been he's, he's indicated. A... That's where he's coming from. You're saying he, in his old age, he's flipped over and become somebody else. Oh, they all have, bro. That's the that's the dem- that's the left now. That's it's everybody. That's Annette Bening. That's Warren Bay. That's the whole mm-hmm. group of them. They all believe this. They're good Puritans. They're good liberals. They're not going to be do bad things. They're only going to help. They're not going to harm. Um, I've written to Freakin, by the way, and asked him, "Can you please explain what's going on?" And of course, he hasn't responded. And I know that others, including uh, naturally Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Kenny, who's supposed to be working on some article that may or may not appear in the Times, or maybe I don't know where it's going to be, but he's, you know, he's reached out. And I think that Nolte from Breitbart has reached out to, to Friedkin. And to my understanding, this is limited, of course, I don't think he's responded to anybody, which is really, really chicken shit. I mean, if you're going to do something and change your whole view of what's appropriate in terms of censorship and become, you know, signable for the whole woke thing. Okay, but at least you admit to it, you know. And the second thing is, how could Criterion justify um, not at least saying this has been altered, you know, this is not the original film. We're showing it to you. It's part of the streaming deal. But we are, we have to at least state before you watch it, that it's not the same film that was um, that won the Oscar and all those other Oscars back in '72, you know. But they even they haven't uh, copped to that, which is like astonishing, really. Mm. I, I don't. It's not that surprising to me. It's sad, but it's not that surprising. And, and, and it's funny because in in China, the censorship okay. comes from state ordered, right? They yeah. they they want everybody to think a certain way, and they have no problem censoring things so that they keep all the things that could change the way people think out of there and we're doing it too but we're not the state isn't necessarily although we're not that far from the state doing it but right Mm -hmm. now it's the people it's the liberals it's the left shockingly that are doing it they want it to they want to sanitize they want to orwell you know due to due to, to to our language to our history what they do in orwell's book you know that's exactly when they talk about newspeak and they talk about taking out offensive language and they talk about taking out history and that, you know, that's the great lament of, um, of a utopian society, which is what Mm -hmm. we're trying to build. So I'm not, you know, it puts you in that awkward position of having to sit there and go, they have to have the N word in the movie, you know, like (laughs) it just seems ridiculous to be fighting over that. Um, but, but we all should, find alarming is that they just went ahead and censored it without us knowing and i think that's the problem i think if they're going to censor it they should tell people ahead of time that's what they're going to do and it's certainly not consistent i mean the 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 character papa doyle uses uh guinea and other pejoratives uh spick uh you know he's full of racial uh terms there's a uh there's two references to uh to to black guys uh, picking their feet you know, it's a thing. If he sees a black suspect of some sort, he asks him, "Did you do you pick your feet in Poughkeepsie?" That's a racial thing. That's like right out there. There's no ambiguity. 
They didn't take that out, but they only took out the N word. But that's why so, that's such a great movie is because it's so authentic and real to the time. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. that's you have to remember like that's it was. Oh, God, it was way worse than that. I mean, you know, if, if we don't if we erase our past, we're never going to learn from it. And but, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not. Unfortunately, Jeff, this is a battle where we've lost. There, there's no changing this around. But out of respect for even the wokesters, there's nobody who says this is a good idea. Even the the crazies uh, on the progressive left, they're not even saying this is a good idea. Nobody approves this. You have to. There's nobody that has said it's a good thing that they censored the word. So you have to at least give them that credit. Nobody has said that. Oh well, okay, that's good. But there's not enough public pressure because, like you said, I mean, they're not going to have a whole bunch of people on Twitter demanding that they put the word back in. Um, That's true. People are afraid of saying, let's put it back in because they don't want to seem like they're in some way endorsing or agreeing with the use of that. So they so so they don't put on the pressure. And if the pressure's not put on and they don't get embarrassed publicly, they won't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. But maybe there is enough of a story if Glenn Kenny wrote about it. In the New York Times, that would make a big difference, you know, that, that if he makes an argument about not how, why he shouldn't do that, that's a giant platform and they will hear that and, and Friedkin will hear it and read it. It's, it's not going to matter if it's just all of us talking about it, you know. It's just um, to, 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 to um, <clears throat> you can't just let this slide. This has to have a resolution. Friedkin either has to acknowledge that he completely flipped over and became this other person in his in his dotage in his old age or or he, you know because he never complained he never uh, recorded or put out a statement that this is it's not a, my idea it's a it's a climate of fear like i told you you know we'll just finish this up with uh you know oppenheimer and being called in front of the the panel um being called a basically a traitor to the United States and his big crime Oppenheimer's was first of all mm-hmm. being Jewish uh, in a time of anti-semitism they, they most of the people a lot of the scientists that they persecuted were Jewish right. um and also that he urged our government to mm-hmm. not build the H bomb and to de-escalate the arms race and for those mm-hmm. two things he had two presidents um Truman and Eisenhower angry at him for that and yeah. the FBI began to treat him like he was a either a communist sympathizer or potentially a communist spy. So not he, reliable. Not a reliable patriot in terms of the war against the, the Cold War. A, a against threat. The Russians. Yeah, yeah. A, a dangerous mm-hmm. threat. And, and so these hearings, like 20 million people, I think, watched them at night and mm-hmm. watched him be persecuted. And one of the great scenes in the book is Einstein tells him, says, walks up to him and says, just resign, walk away. You know, he's like, mm-hmm. it's after having fled Germany, you know, I know that you can't win this fight. Have, you know, save your dignity. And, and, and uh, Oppenheimer tells him, no, he, that he loves this country as much as he loves science and that he, he believes that they will mm-hmm. exonerate him in the end. Poor guy. And so, of course, they don't. But, but you know, mm-hmm. he's the, the, the transcripts are, br- are brilliant all the way through it. Uh, the things he says, like he's kind of an asshole back to them. He's snarky. He's sarcastic at times. Because the mm-hmm. questions just become more and more ludicrous. Mm-hmm. But the idea is he has to name names. They want him to keep naming names, to keep handing 
people over to, they even interview his wife and his brother. It's just, it is just, but see, people are so, that that kind of fear Mm -hmm. is what we're living through now. And Friedkin is afraid of being in that spotlight, like everybody. He's afraid someone's going to say, you know, um, the N-words in this movie, and this is why it's a damaging movie, and this is why people shouldn't watch it. It's a complete reversal of who he has been. He's never been that squishy, acquiescent, uh, softballer who who decides to play it political for his own safety. What does he have to lose at this point? He's got whatever money he's got. He's 87. He's, things are not going to change for him substantially. How could he possibly fold in in over this i'm just astonished that he did this because he's legacy he's worried about his legacy now he doesn't want to necessarily leave this behind um and honestly if you if your reader hadn't even noticed it nobody would know know anything about it you got a point there if if nobody had had mentioned it you know Uh, i probably wouldn't have you know it never would have occurred to me but i'm glad it it was noticed and 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 i'm glad i had a chance to say something about it I'm just astonished that a person of his backbone, he has never been a go-alonger. You know, he's a fairly tough director, and he's, he's very outspoken, and you know, he's not a squishy person. He never has been. I'm just in shock, almost, that a, that a guy like him would, would, would capitulate. So, I'm not I, shocked. I mean, what, what have we been, you know, what have we... What have, I didn't do anything. <laughs> Don't <laughs> what, get angry. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just saying, what, what have we been living through? You know, and this is just, yeah. this change is unfortunately permanent, at least for the time being until the pendulum shifts, which, you know. It has, listen, there are exceptions to the rule. And as I, we just pointed out, Wes Anderson has shown some actual backbone as far as Bill Murray is concerned. And if Wes Anderson can show a little backbone, why in the hell wouldn't, wouldn't uh, William Friedkin show a little backbone, for God's sake? But he didn't. I mean, this is what I find so startling. I'm not surprised at the cowardice I see out there. People that I really admire turn out to be cowards. And so now I know, you know, now I know why the McCarthy hearings happened and why so many people went along with it and how brave those people were who stood up to it, especially Arthur Miller and Mm -hmm. and Rod Serling of the Twilight Zone. It's just that they don't have that kind of courage today because all of the institutions and all the money are on the other side. And so they can't Mm -hmm. just make a Twilight Zone. They can't write the Crucible and have it show. They would just get attacked. So, you know, it, it's really a shame and really sad to see things. But we're in the middle of a big change, a big transformational change. Yeah. And, and well, I don't know where we're all going to end up, but it does feel like the end of an era. It feels like the end of the Friedkin era. It feels like the end of the Oscar era, mm-hmm. um, the end of the Golden Globes, the end of blogging for the Oscars, you know, <laughs> it, it just it, the end of writing, the end of fiction. The end of everything that the baby boomers helped to build when they broke free from convention. Especially with AI being a big factor as far as... AI, totally. God, God help us with AI. Yeah. Like that is, that's really, I mean, people act like, you know, they're having this writer's strike right now. Mm -hmm. And it's so unfortunate because they're doing it at the same, I want to stand behind them and I support them, but they're Mm -hmm. doing it at a time when they're about to be (laughs) rendered uh un, you know useless 
Mm. They're not going to need them anymore, especially if they're writing by the woke code. Yeah, especially if they're not doing what humans should do, like Rod Serling. And mm. No AI could write Rod Serling. No AI could write um, The Crucible. Yeah. They, they can only write in compliance with the going ideology because that's what AI does. But humans don't. So if they're not standing up and they're not writing subversive art and they're not showing their value, mm-hmm. then people aren't going to need them anymore. Hey, by the way, um, you, we, we talked uh, two or three days ago about the Kate Hepburn documentary, which I, I can we just mention that briefly? Yeah, did you, you said watch you were it? rather taken by it. And um, I had not seen it at the time. I've seen it since. Oh. And I know it uh, omits quite a number of things, but that's necessary if you're going to be compressing a person's life. But it did capture her spirit and her uh independent streak and mm-hmm. the way she was uh irreverent in many ways yeah. she was uh, very particular and very fickle i rather enjoyed uh living with her getting to know her a Me little too. bit better you know so i love it was, loved I, mean, it I was and... glad that they did they, they, they did this so yeah it, you're yeah. right it's i mean it's not a it's not a hard-hitting expose or anything but mm-hmm. she it's just it's just interesting to to live through this and and witness this person you know who had yeah. all this energy who was so unique and yeah. her love affair with Spencer Tracy, like I, I just, I loved all the old clips, uh, and and the words from her, her toughness, you know, she really mm-hmm. is that character. And I didn't know that she she wrote so many of those screenplays and stuff. I didn't know that she was that involved in that. That she was such a a businesswoman. I had no idea any of that existed. I was really a brilliant figure, and I think that her that her effect upon <clears throat> the women's self image and about independence and 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 basically creating her own uh, profile and and going her own way, really she's one of the great uh, great women of the of the 20th century. The last two, you know, she's really something. And I came away with a, an enhanced, uh, deepened respect for her. Me and, too. Uh, I and I I understood so much more about her from from watching that. How restless mm-hmm. she was, you know. Yeah. Um. She never had kids, right? She never did. Nope. No. And and. You know what I don't believe, though? Um, I know she was, you know, certainly bisexual and, and uh, you, you know, you say love affair with Spencer Tracy. I don't really believe in my gut that they were sexual with each other. Uh, I think that they were deeply in love with each other and cared deeply. But I, I've never sensed that there was any a strong current of sexuality in that woman. Oh, I do. Uh, I definitely do with him specifically. But I get okay. what you're saying about her being. Remember, I told you I said if she was born today, they'd transition her <laughs> because yeah, yeah. she was such a tomboy and she was mm-hmm. so clearly androgynous um, and yeah. and and not sexy in a heterosexual way, but sexy in a if she was gay, she was a sexy uh, gay woman looking, but she wasn't gay. She was. She says she wasn't. But well, she clearly uh, I mean, I don't I don't believe that Scotty, uh, the guy who wrote the uh, uh, full service, the book, I don't believe he was completely lying. He said that he set her up with many, many, many women uh, over the the course of their relationship in the you know 30s, 40s, 50s. Well, it's not in that documentary. So it's a separate kind of thing. And maybe it's true. Yeah. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. But mm. I, I agree. I don't think he would have lied about something like that. She did. Yeah. She does seem like a gay woman. Uh, everything we know about gay women, but I can see how she would have gone with Spencer Tracy because of her father, her relationship with her father. Spencer Tracy seemed to be very like her dad, kind of hard, 
hard man. And, and there's this something about a very masculine man mm-hmm. that uh, is, is, is good sexually because they mm-hmm. just service themselves and pleasure themselves and you don't have to worry about anything. Yeah. And, and that's, there's actually something really intriguing about that with men. As opposed mm-hmm. to the other kind that are like, you know, <laughs> always trying to like, you know, be a good lover or whatever and, and service the woman and stuff. And a lot of women just aren't, aren't really into that. They kind of like the old, you know, a man who sort of takes charge and does what he has to do. And I could see that being their relationship more than I could see it being, you know, him thinking about her orgasm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, it just seemed like it was. A tra- the traditionalism of it that she liked the fact that he was just a sturdy man mm-hmm. you know and and totally himself he was just himself he wasn't pretentious and he was funny um but i agree it, that that probably the core of their relationship wasn't necessarily sexual yeah you know there's a really funny david poland uh, back and forth on twitter today which uh, a woman was saying you know there's no real masculine men on the left <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, I'd yes. like to know some some liberal guys who have that kind of traditional masculinity yep, that, yep, that yep. she likes, but she says they don't exist. And, She's right. And I thought that was kind of funny. They've been they've been deballed. I'm yeah. sorry to say, and and mm-hmm. I agree with that. Like, where are their testicles? Like, it's just they just they're absent, and um, mm-hmm. I think that's a real problem. It's a problem in movies and and everywhere else. This is, you get these sort of weak men. Um, mm-hmm. I, that's probably horrible to say and mean, but everything. But you know, women like masculine men. I do. So I know that all, women have always said that throughout the years. They do not like these wimpy guys who basically are girly men. They mm-hmm. really like men to be men. But that this woman was saying, you know, in in the liberal environment, if you will, um, you, you just can't meet guys that are like that. The, the only way you find authentically male guys with with masculinity of a classic sense is that you have to deal with conservative men and that just seems so limiting well the i mean it's true that the really traditional masculine men are on the right they celebrate it it's it's valued in that because the nuclear family is valued and traditional roles are valued Mm -hmm. but the masculinity on the left that i noticed the men who are masculine they're like david pullen they tend to just be really bitter and kind of nasty people like (laughs) It's just like Trump just broke them. And so they, they are just, and also not that, but also just being displaced mm-hmm. and not valued anymore. They don't really know what to do with themselves. They're like those poor little bull elephants that are kicked out of the tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they mm-hmm. don't have a place anymore because they've relinquished their masculinity to be good people, to try to mm-hmm. decenter themselves mm-hmm. and, and think that's a good thing. But it's left them in this kind of weird place, you know? Mm-hmm. David Poland is actually a very masculine person, but he but he plays this this other kind of person online. But in yeah. person, he's actually quite masculine. I, I have found. But he's always resisted uh, coming over to our neck of the woods. He oh, he likes to really just straddle yeah, no, the line. He doesn't want to be an, an anti wokester. He doesn't nope. see that as helpful to his career. So. No, he's a good liberal, and that's where he is. He finds mm-hmm. his value. I agree. Like there's, there are very few that that will, Jeff. Honestly, and you, you, you know, you even have your limits. I'm pretty much all the way over. Mm-hmm. I have no limits in in my situation, but <laughs> I feel like, um, and I'm mm-hmm. happy with it that way. It's, it's, you know, it's lonely and isolating at times, and sometimes scary, but it's more fun and exciting and interesting for me than 
whatever is happening over here yeah on, on the left but it, mm -hmm. you know um i don't if i was a guy i wouldn't want to relinquish my my manliness no <laughs> uh, my manliness my alpha male status i mean that's it's like with lily rose depp her sexuality man that's all she's got bro yeah at this moment in time maybe that'll change but that's her calling card and if you're an if you're alpha male that's your calling card that's your mm -hmm. that's your that's your value in culture is that yeah so don't get rid of it you know speaking of masculinity uh i i watched one other netflix uh documentary and that's the one about arnold it's a three-part oh right and it's um three chapters the first chapter being about his austrian roots and childhood and coming up in the bodybuilding world uh and then there's chapter two which is how the movie thing began and it begins with his um uh, having been in a film called Stay Hungry, a uh, Bob Ravelson film, which is absolutely one of my absolute favorite 70s films. Jeff Bridges is the star, Sally Field is also in it. But Arnold plays a straight fiddle-playing bodybuilder who's very, very charming and smooth and very upfront. It's really one of the, it's arguably, in my view, one of the most appealing things he's ever done. Hmm. And right after that was a uh, documentary that was a big hit, you know, called um, Pumping Iron. And that was a huge thing in Cannes. And he went over there. And, and then after that, that led to The Terminator in 84. And then he became huge after that. Hmm. And, um, and then, of course, T2 and, and Twins and all, you know. So it was a big thing. And then the chapter three is The Governorship. And the sad, uh, embarrassing thing in which it was it was revealed that first of all the, the liberal press went after him for his uh, sexual um, proclivities um, outside the realm of his marriage to Maria, uh, and um, <clears throat> he uh, I remember being in a People magazine conference at one point. We were talking about his. Uh, this is ninety. Five, no, 96, 96, 96, mm -hmm. 97. I remember uh, there was a piece by John Connolly at Premier in which he was, uh, he was quoted secondhand as saying that eating isn't cheating. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, he's saying basically what Clinton was saying. If it's oral, it's not really primal. It's not biblical. Lord just, help you know, us. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know why people don't see what I see in terms of why a William Friedkin would change like that, but we don't have time to go into it today. But the next time we talk, we can I can talk about this fourth turning generational thing, which predicts that the 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 boomers of yesterday become the sort of you know they 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 change as they head toward death. They become more worried about what they're going to leave behind, their legacy, yeah. their legacy, mm -hmm. and being responsible and being you know and guiding the next generation, and you know. That's All a completely of, shameful. That's uh, very different from being a young upstart. You know, the, the, the basically the, what we've lived through in our lifetime is such a huge shift from the establishment being the conservatives and mm. Christianity being sort of the religion of the land and all of us on the left pushing back from that and challenging mm. it. And, you know, and everything that we created after that from the French connection on mm. was in response to that. But it's all shifted and switched because now the left is the establishment. Yeah. And so guys like him are establishment. They're like the conservatives of back then, but they're 
they're these sort of new kind of good Puritans. They want to be thought of well by Generation Z, in other words. Mm. That's what they care about. It's utterly shameful. A half century of that film being, and then he changes it. It's just absolutely. Well, I, I, I think the, the shameful part in the seventies, maybe or the eighties, or something like that. And he just, you know, he had a Spielberg moment where he wanted to take the uh, the, the the guns out of the federal agents' hands and right. put the talkies, you know, that kind of thing. Which Spielberg, as you know, um, he changed his mind. So you know, I shouldn't have done that. I should have just stuck with the guns. But um, oh yeah, because the only value you have a, in art. Is is that it's that it's rooted in, in truth, you know, and if, if you take yeah. that out, if it's, it becomes artifice. So um, the thing about William Friedkin, to me, the, the really shameful thing he did was to do it without telling people and sneaking it through. That's the thing that bothers me. That's horrible. Yeah. Is that we just now we just don't know. Now we're set off like what else is going to be censored, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. Okay. Have a good one. All right. Take care. Catch you later. Bye. Bye.